Hello and welcome to Concert Pipeline. I'm Steve Jones. Today on the program we have David Liebert, uh, who uh, is a, a musician. He, he's really a, a former musician. He uh, had his band, The Happenings, that uh, existed uh, a number of decades ago and left their mark in the music world. But he also was able to leave his mark through his uh, management and tour managing of many notable artists, uh, including uh, let's see, we got Alice Cooper, we have his impact with uh, George Clinton, and uh, we have his impact on uh, Sheila E, which uh, led him to uh, meet Prince and kind of work with Prince a little bit. Um, so there's a, a large mark, and he has a number of so, uh, great stories that he tells um, in his um, memoir, Rock and Roll Warrior, um, which uh, we talk about in the interview. Uh, and he shared a number of the stories candidly on, uh, in the interview as well. Uh, there's a lot we didn't talk about that's in Rock and Roll Warrior where it gets pretty deep into his personal life. And, uh, and I, you know, I just decided not to touch those areas because I wanted to focus more on the music, more on the um, legends that he got to work with and kind of hear some of his stories around that. But we'll get into that in just a minute. Uh, before we do, catch up on what's going on in my world uh, over the uh, past week. Uh, let's see. Uh, I mean, really, it's a countdown until duck hunting season at this point. Uh, less than a week left until duck hunting season. So Friday, I'm going to uh, be uh, camping out at Grizzly Island and uh, sleeping in my car, ready to hit some ducks uh, early Saturday morning. And uh, and it's great. Um, it's It's a time that uh, really is so important to me and gotten more important to me each year that uh, that I've been hunting and uh, and every season I've gotten better and better and learned from mistakes I've made uh, and uh, and sharpened my skills um, figured out you know the importance of wearing contacts and being able to put contacts in my eyes easier which is uh, uh, a skill unto itself um, it's something that I did not come naturally at all for uh, for me. So um, all that's coming together. I've you know so I've been going through. I pulled all my hunting gear together yesterday and uh, and got my stuff ready. I'm going to be going out with one or two buddies that um, that we're going to be that I hunt with frequently and live here in Vacaville with me. Uh, so. Uh, so it's going to be a lot of fun. I'm super, super stoked on it. And by uh, uh, the next episode, I will have um, will have gone out on opening day for uh, for duck hunting. So uh, so that is really great. That's that's really the big gist of what's going on in in my world. Everything else is small fries, normal stuff that uh, I had to deal with. My son is about to turn nine, uh, and that's uh, you know that's big. He's pretty excited about it, and we're going to throw him. Uh, uh, a little birthday party, nothing too too big, but you know, a little bit, a couple some close family, and uh, his his buddy George uh, will will be there as well. So, you know, that's kind of what the the plan is there, uh, and uh, and then you know, just take taking time for myself. Oh yeah, the big thing in the middle of the week, I did uh, fly down to L.A. and I got to see um, Andrew McMahon. Uh, just him and a piano at Hotel Cafe with my buddy John Lally and uh, two of his friends. And that was that was really awesome. I mean, I know I, I just saw Andrew about a, uh, a month ago uh, up here in San Francisco, but this show was really intimate and unique and uh, an opportunity to have a quick little getaway in the middle of the week that I normally don't treat myself to. So uh, 
so I really enjoyed that. He played a lot of cuts that he uh, he doesn't pull out all the time, and uh, had a really great set list. Played for almost two hours, and uh, and that was really cool. And it'll probably be sometime next year until I see uh, Andrew again live, and by then he'll have a, a new album out, and uh, and hopefully come on Concert Pipeline to talk about it. So. That's what's going on in my world. I don't want to waste any more time because we have a really great in-depth chat with David Liebert and, um, and let's bring David on in now. David, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. How about yourself? No complaints here. You know, it's a great uh, Sunday afternoon in uh, Northern California. So, uh, you know, all you're, good. You're in Napa Valley, are you? Uh, I'm, I actually moved uh, from Napa. I'm just a little bit outside. I'm in, uh, I'm in Vacaville. So yeah, not far off though, but all I, right. I, I, I'm from Napa. I grew up there and lived there for a long time. So Napa's Napa's home base for sure. So um, as you know, I know LA has kind of become your home base, but you've stepped outside of uh, of LA and kind of been able to disconnect from all the the craziness that LA and is in, is involved with LA, right? Yeah, um, I am sort of. I'm about 125 miles east. I'm out by Joshua Tree actually now. Yeah. And, uh, I like it out here. It's it's, uh, it's very peaceful and leisurely. If I want to go crazy, I go to LA, but not too often. If I want to go semi crazy, Palm Springs is only half an hour away. Yeah, yeah, that works. I was in LA the past two days. Actually, I went to a show, <laughs> show down there at a hotel cafe. So um, it's pretty. So cool. is this um, <clears throat> is this actually a Zoom podcast, or are you just using it for audio? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we use video for YouTube also. Okay, uh, great. So uh, it's audio and uh, and video, so multiple platforms. So, um, <coughs> All right. Which, which is cool because, I mean, those that, uh, that view it will be able to see all your amazing awards on the wall, which kind of signifies everything that we're going to be talking to uh, today, you know, in, and encompass it, right? So you have, you have so many stories in your new book that, that I read that, I mean, there's, there's so much to get into. So um, I kind of like to start at the beginning and I want to know what that itch was for you as a kid what what did you latch on to musically you know kind of in your household uh that kind of really kind of spoke to you well my uh, my earliest recollection I used to listen to the uh what did they call it the hit parade the top 20 songs uh in the country and uh they would uh, uh they would play them in ascending order I used to like to listen to that. That's how I knew what was uh, going on. Um, and but I also listened to this other station. I grew up in New Jersey, so I listened to New York stations. But I also listened to WDAO, which was this station in Newark, New Jersey. Um, and the disc jockey I used to listen to was a guy named Jocko, Jocko Henderson. <clears throat> back on the scene with the record machine saying, ooh, Papa do, how do you do? And they played, Jocko played all of the doo-wop bands, the, the uh, uh, Jesters, the Paragons, the Diablos, those kinds of bands. And uh, I found myself in my early teen years hanging out with a few friends that could harmonize. We used to call it chirping, mm -hmm. let's chirp. And we used to do it a lot in the parking lot of the restaurant we used to hang out with. And the, uh, I don't think uh, the incentive was that we're gonna be, you know, uh, you know, a band or a vocal group. 
I think the incentive at that time was it was a good way to meet girls. Yeah. Um, then we realized that, you know, we're pretty good at this. We seem to be as good, uh, as good, if not better than most of these uh, records we were hearing on the radio. So we decided maybe we should take a more serious look at all this. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so how did that segue into the happenings for you? Like, I mean, that was kind of a precursor to kind of get to that point, right? Yeah. Well, I think when um, we started to realize we were pretty good at it, I started to hit the, uh, hit the streets of Tin Pan Alley, which was only, you know, Manhattan was only about 12, 15 miles uh, uh, from Patterson, New Jersey, where I was living. Um, the George Washington Bridge was only 12 miles away. So I hit this, <clears throat> Tin Pan Alley is a section of Manhattan on Broadway where a lot of, there's a lot of buildings that house uh, music companies, record companies, music publishing companies, production companies. And I started, we made a little demo. It wasn't bad. And uh, if I walked into the offices of a publisher, I was a songwriter. If I walked into the offices of a record company, I was in a band production company, and I was in a singing group. And then one day I walked into the offices of uh, Bright Tunes Production, a production company owned by the Tokens, another uh, uh, singing group. And, and they, uh, they were impressed with the little demo we had. So they offered me and our lead singer, Bobby Miranda, a job writing songs for their publishing company. And they gave us a room with a little piano in it. And we went to work every day uh, at their offices and hung out in our little room and started writing songs for them. <clears throat> and we started to have some success. One of our songs ended up on the album uh, uh, by the Chiffons, who the Tokens also produced. And one of Bobby's songs actually ended up uh, being recorded by Jerry and the Pacemakers. Now, this was pretty monumental because the producer of the of Jerry and the Pacemakers was none other than George Martin, who of course also produced the Beatles. Little band, you little band right? You know, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. we felt like we were in the game at that point. And, uh, and also part of the deal with the tokens was if we uh, were gonna write songs for them, uh, they agreed to produce the happenings. So yeah. things started to fall into place. Yeah, and so how was working with the tokens? I mean, how tell me kind of what they brought to the uh, uh, the happenings? What, you know, how did what did they bring out of you? Well, they brought a few things really. Uh, not only were we writing songs for them, but the tokens grew up in a section of Brooklyn where there was a very tight knit little uh, group of songwriters and musicians uh, that uh, the tokens either went to school with in Brooklyn or were friendly with uh, the, the people that uh, they went to school with. And this was quite an array of people. Carol King, Jerry Goffin, uh, Al Cooper, Neil Sedaka, uh, Barry Mann, Cynthia Weil. Uh, it was, and these people used to come by the offices. They were friends with the Tokens and they would be hawking their songs to uh, some of the bands that the Tokens were producing. and. Um, <laughs> And we got to know these people a little bit. 
and because we had had a little bit of success with the songwriting, we were, I guess, perceived as up and coming guys, just young guys that uh, maybe we're going to do well in the business. Yeah. Yeah, and so uh, see you in September. Um, I think the first time you heard that was on WABC, is that right? When you heard no, it on the radio? Uh, the story is um, uh, the record company, the distributor, sent 3,000 copies out to promotional copies to every single top 40 AM station in the country. And not one single station decided to play it. So the guy who was responsible for insisting that that be the single that we put out, <clears throat> somehow or other groveled and begged and got WBCN in Boston to commit to a three week uh, uh, um, on their playlist for three weeks. And uh, first week, nothing. Second week, uh, a bit of a trickle. By the third week, it, it, it was starting to sell. And so much so that they decided to stick with it beyond the three-week commission uh, 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 commitment. And uh, then it really started to sell and they put it into heavy rotation. While all this was going on, the guy who begged them for the, uh, to, to put it on their playlist was also calling all of these other stations in New England and Hartford and New Haven and Syracuse, uh, Buffalo, also uh, up and down the, uh, uh, the East Coast, some other stations using WBCN in Boston as ammunition to get them to add it to their playlists. So much so that WMCA, the second biggest uh, top 40 station in New York, decided to play and they played it for several weeks. And the whole idea was to get WABC, the other station in New York, the biggest AM station in the entire country to go on it. And they wouldn't. And we were getting nervous because WMCA wasn't going to play it forever. Eventually, they were going to drop it. And then our worst fears came to fruition. ABC didn't go on it. MCA did drop it. And we're really bummed out. And I, we were on our way down to a gig in Washington, D.C. We're in Bobby Miranda's car. And because we were so pissed off at WMCA, we're listening to ABC. Uh -huh. And just as we get out of the area, starting to leave the area where we can still actually hear ABC, we hear the disc jockey in typical AM disc jockey. But hey, here's a new one by a, a group called The Havenings. I think you're going to like it. It's called See You in September. We go, oh, my God. We had to pull over to the side of the road. And we were laughing, crying, hugging each other, screaming. The impossible had happened. <clears throat> it, was, it was just a ploy where ABC refused to go on it to force WMCA uh, to drop it from their playlist so the next day they could uh, go on it and, and look cooler than they were. And yeah. then, of course, the following day after that, they picked uh, it back without up. any fanfare at all, WMCA added the record Re back to their playlist again. And uh, by the end of that next week, every single AM station in the country had added it, came a big hit. By the time September rolled around, it was a number one record. So we got lucky and uh, we were at the right place at the right time. And, and how, was playing, how was playing shows after that came out and was, and was a hit? What were the audiences like? 
Well, we we uh, we went on tours. I, we went on a Dick Clark tour. We went on a Gene Pitney tour. These were tours that would play in front of 10 to 20,000 people. So we were getting good exposure. Each band would play maybe four to five songs. And uh, there were several, uh, let's see, the, on the Dick Clark tour, there was uh, Lou Christie, Lightning Striking Again. You remember that song? Yeah. And uh, who else is on it? The Buckinghams, uh, the Capitals, Cool Jerk. Ba -dum, bum, bum, ba -dum. Uh, that was quite an experience. And uh, we uh, started to feel like uh, we were becoming successful. It was it was it was a great uh, period of time for us. That's what we did that summer. We 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 were booked on those big tours and uh, got a lot of exposure by doing them. Not a lot of money. You got to, a lot of exposure. And speaking of exposure, you got to play on Johnny Carson. Like, what was that experience like? Um. Yeah, that was uh, that was kind of surreal. You know, a couple of years before that, we stay up late and watch Johnny Carson. Now we're on the show. Uh, yeah. We played Johnny Carson, Merv Griffin. We played the Smothers Brothers. That was that was pretty cool. Went out to Los Angeles and got on the Smothers Brothers show, which was the number one uh, show in the country. But there, we also played a lot of uh, 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 regional shows. Every big town, like, let's see, uh, Cleveland had Shindig. Uh, there's a show in Philadelphia, the Jerry Blavitt show, the Gita with the Heater. And while we're backstage, and I think we're on our second or third hit by this time, and we're backstage and there's a young lady backstage and she said, my God, it must be unbelievable to have a hit record. I can't imagine what that feels like. Well, six months later, she found out for Aretha. herself. That person Aretha. was Aretha Franklin. Yeah. And of course she went on to become music history oh uh, yeah it's it's really awesome when you kind of have this moment with someone before they they blow up like that right you're like mm, i was there at the beginning in a sense right you know it's yeah it's so absolutely cool. yeah um well that's that's so cool and i wanted to talk about your mom a little bit before we get too far into like to alice cooper obviously we have a lot to talk about there but but your your mom really um, you know helped instill some of this musicality into you, right? Like that's where you got your your love of the bass, and um, and she put you in piano when you were five, right? Well, when I was five six years old, I was um, I was considering the idea of playing the piano, and uh, and she said, along with my dad, we'll give you piano lessons, but you have to promise not to quit. Uh, that was the deal. That was the stipulation. Yeah. So I agreed. And uh, by the time I was big enough to say I've had it, I don't care what I promise. I'm quitting. I already had eight years of classical training under my belt. And the my piano teacher also realized that uh, I could play by ear. I was interested in chord theory. So he um, he gave me chord theory lessons as well, which proved to be uh, helped me develop my possibly one uh, uh, unique uh, talent, which was vocal arranging. I used to listen to bands, of course, the Beach Boys and <clears throat> uh, uh, the Four Seasons, who also came from New Jersey. 
but I also listened to a lot of jazz. So it exposed me to uh, Lambert Henriksen Ross and uh, the high lows and the four freshmen, double six of Paris. I loved that stuff. And I applied a lot of that. I was the vocal arranging for the happenings. So I applied a lot of that to our, uh, to our songs. Yeah. Do you, do you still play music? Like do you pull out the guitar sometimes and, and twiddle around? Like Mostly the piano. I have a piano here in the house and I, yeah. I uh, jingle the keys. Uh, um, I say a few times a week just to keep my chops. Yeah, so I, yeah. I you, you've gone back to it. It's you yeah. gave piano its time, and you <laughs> and now you're comfortable back at the piano. That's cool. Um, yeah. So let's let's talk about Alice Cooper, right? Um, so tell me about kind of being thrown in as the tour manager because I know that wasn't like the most natural fit for you at first. You had to kind of adapt to the the settings and figure out what that role meant, and and really kind of become great at it, really. Well, one day I get a call from Johnny Bodell, Alice Cooper's booking agent, and he said, uh, Shep Gordon uh, is looking for a tour manager for um, his band, uh, the Alice Cooper Band. And uh, so I get the job. And uh, the first gig is in Atlanta, Georgia. I had absolutely no idea what I was supposed to do, what the job entailed. You know, there was no uh, manual, the user's manual to go with the gig. And my first perception was 30 or 40 insane looking people crawling all over this gear and equipment. And I said, my God, what did I get myself into? I thought I made the biggest mistake of my life. And Shep said, look, just observe, watch what's going on. You'll get the hang of it. And by the end of the week, I did start to get the hang of it. I started to figure some things out and um, I fell into the job and it uh, became just a fabulous uh, job. It was a real learning experience. Shep Gordon was my mentor, you know, super mensch. Yeah. And he, um, I would say 95% of everything I learned about the music industry, I learned from Shep Gordon. Yeah, well, let's talk about that that relationship a little bit, right? And and Supermensch as as well. Like, I just let's start with Supermensch and work our way back a little bit. But then uh, when Supermensch is being made and Mike Myers is you know is being cast as, as chef, what are your thoughts? How does and kind of tell me your your impression as you see this uh, this kind of telling of this the Chef Gordon story? Well, it didn't it didn't show a lot of what I had experienced with Chef Chef was a very demanding guy. He demanded absolute perfection. It's easy to see why looking back on it because there were so many working parts to an Alice Cooper tour. Um, you know, basically Alice was the first band that uh, carried their own uh, lighting and sound. We're talking way back in you know, the early 70s. Now everybody does all that, of course, with yeah. extravagant uh, uh, stage shows. Alice was kind of the first. So it was a very demanding job uh, dealing uh, with all the people that were for him, dealing with the band. If I had to pick the easiest person to deal with on the road, it would have to be Alice Cooper himself. 
uh, if he was asked to be in the lobby at 8.22 in the morning, Alice Cooper was in the lobby at 8.22 in the morning. He was a consummate professional and he's a hell of a great guy. And uh, it was just a pleasure working for him. Yeah. And I, um, the book uh, tells a lot of stories. Sure. Uh, you know, I didn't want to make the book this salacious tell-all, you know, uh, um, uh, crazy uh, book like that. I, I wanted it to be have more of a different kind of flow to it. Yeah, there's a little bit of that in it. it I mean, it's rock and roll can hardly be avoided completely, but that was not the intent of the book, and I don't think it was. I wanted it to be informative and fun to read and uh, to give people some insight as to what it would be like to be traveling in your own airplane all over the world with a, you know, a huge um, uh, rock and roll band. And I, th I think I was able to accomplish that, certainly as far as the Alice Cooper part of the book uh, is concerned. So, so we're talking about Shep, and I'm curious, uh, what are some of the biggest things you took away and learned from uh, from Shep? You talk about him as a mentor. What were what were some of his biggest lessons? Shep Gordon is very creative. He wasn't just an administrator of a band. He actually was part of the creative force. And, uh, um, he was very much involved in what the show is like, and he he has some very interesting attributes. He could take a negative and turn it into a positive. I'll give you an example. Uh, um, Alice Cooper was gonna do a show at the Hollywood Bowl here in Los Angeles. And the uh, Shep had been at battle with uh, Warner Brothers. He wanted the uh, School's Out album. He wanted that album's record sleeve inside the album to be a pair of paper panties. So he basically just beat Warners into submission and, you know, they relented. And, and so for the, uh, for the Hollywood Boulevard show, I mean, the Hollywood Bowl show, he wanted a helicopter to fly over the 18,000 uh, uh, people in the audience and, and drop 18,000 panties, have them rain down on the audience. And there was one problem. The panties were manufactured in Israel, and the paper panties did not pass the United States Flammable Fabrics Act, and they were held up in customs because of that. That sounds like a disaster, yeah. right? Well, not for Shep yeah. Gordon. No. The next thing you know, there's articles all over the world with the headlines like, Alice Cooper's panties, too hot to handle. Alice Cooper's panties. Uh, uh, on fire. Um, panties Alice dropped Cooper, at the Hollywood Bowl. <laughs> and so, and uh, he, boy, did he get mileage out of that. And somehow or other, he was able to get him out of customs just in time to have him rain down on the audience at the Hollywood Bowl. And that yeah. is typical Chef Gordon. I mean, he sets his mind to something. You better get out of the way because he's going to accomplish that. And uh, not only that, he was a hell of a lot of fun. I mean, when the show was, he wasn't on the road all that often. That was my job. But when he was, boy, did we have a good time. He, he, he a real fun-loving guy. And he had a great sense of humor. And he loved to party. And yeah. uh, 
but I learned so much from him learning how to deal with record companies and uh, promoters and booking agents, you know, all of the different uh, uh, things that make up the, uh, the infrastructure of the music industry and what it takes to manage a band. And with that knowledge, I was able to move on after Alice Cooper and uh, achieve a, a bit of success in, in the process. And you can't always just take no at face value, right? And you have to push beyond that no to, you know, to get it to a yes, right? Well, you have to, you know, he, he always thought a step ahead of everybody. If I say this, they're gonna say that. And if they say that, I'm gonna say this. They just weren't ready for him. I mean, if you knew him well enough, if you can anticipate what he was gonna say, you might be able to get the best of him. But most people don't think like that. I yeah. learned that as well. The main thing, what is it that you're trying to accomplish? What is the goal? And what do you have to say or do to accomplish that goal? You put emotion aside, you put, you know, you just have to logically figure out what each step is to attain that goal. He's very, very good at that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, and so, uh, so with Alice, Right. I'm, uh, what I'm curious about is like, tell me about kind of what was that point for you where we're in your relationship with, with Alice, where he, you know, where he, from your vision, he felt that trust from you. Right. Where, I mean, I'm sure it's a, a really close and intimate relationship with the tour manager. He needs to know uh, that the person that's managing him has his back and is, uh, is kind of aware of everything that needs to get done this, uh, every step along the way. Right. So where, where was that trust built? From the time that you started with him to um, to kind of where you became where you yourself became really comfortable, it was very much at the beginning. I mean, one of the things I realized was uh, these are pretty tough people. I had to be tougher than them, and I also had to make it fun for them, and I also had to make it smooth. I had to make sure that they were happy that I was there uh, doing that job. So that was my mission. I, if I can do that, then make them feel like uh, that we're all in it together, that they can confident in my ability to be the tour manager, that they could depend on me and rely on me. That was the key to, to success. And also Shep being the kind of boss that he was, he was perfectly happy to let anybody assume as much responsibility as they wanted. God help you if you failed, yeah. but uh, it, it was an environment uh, in which I thrived, I flourished, I loved it. Yeah. And it was fun, you know, it was, to be on a tour with a bunch of guys day in and day out, you get to know each other very well. Um, you have fun with each other. You make fun of each other. Uh, I'll tell you, if you wanted to work for uh, Alice Cooper, you had to be a pretty good sport because the pranks and the uh, and the jokes were just nonstop and endless. It was kind of what uh, the glue that held the whole thing together. So you can imagine how much fun uh, that was. But you had to have pretty thick skin to uh, to be able to survive in that kind of environment. Donald yeah. Trump could never work for Alice Cooper. Let me tell no, you that. He wouldn't last long, right? So, <laughs> and, and you talk in Rock and Roll Warrior about how even, you know, 
like obviously you have to walk on eggshells a little bit with Alice, but that you, you know, that you made sure that he was not exempt from the needing the thick skin uh, and needing to be uh, able to take the joke. You know, I mean, you talk about the, the stuff, that, sex, drugs, rock and roll on the plane, right? Like, tell me about kind of that experience. Uh, well, we used plane. to have this thing called the ball scores. Yeah. I would get on the, uh, I would get on the PA every morning uh, when we, when we got on the plane, because it was a great place. Everybody was there all at once. It was a great place to uh, disseminate tour information about what was coming up that day, any news conferences, and whatever. Um, and I would also have a thing called the ball scores. I don't think I ever talked about this uh, other than in the book. And uh, the high for the night was uh, the award given to the guy with the prettiest girl from the night before. And uh, uh, and I made up other um, categories: high for the high for the night, doubles, high for the week. It was all a lot of crap, but uh, triples, and, yeah. And it, it uh, but it infuriated some, entertained others. And ra uh, Alice, who rarely participated in that kind of uh, behavior, um, every certainly not once he met his uh, wife to be. Uh, Cheryl Goddard, who he's been married to for 44 years now. But prior to that, every once in a blue moon, he would end up with somebody on the road. You know, we're all young. And, yeah. and then I, he, one night he ended up with some spectacular beauty. And when we got on the plane, he summoned me over. He says, listen, Weaver, I do not want to be in your goddamn ball scores. You, I better not hear my name. I don't want to be part of your stupid ball scores. You got it? I'm a boss and I'm telling you, I better not hear my name. I said, fine, fine, Alice. A little bit of annoyance in my voice. So when I'm doing the ball scores, I say, hi for the night is, and Alice gives me a look like, I will kill you, Lieber. I'm sorry, folks, but at the risk of being indiscreet, I simply can't mention the person's name and then everybody's groaning. Uh, I'll give you a hint though, he's a very big star. And you can see the horror, and uh, the horrified look. And, Alice, and everybody's just hilarious. I said, no one's immune, Alice, not even you. And of course, his anger turned to laughter along with everybody else. I mean, he, he actually liked to be the target of, uh, of, of the, uh, you know, the, uh, the abuse, if you want to call it that. He, he didn't mind being the target of the joke. Yeah, uh, yeah. But he, he was a good guy. This guy, um, never took himself seriously really he he took what he did seriously i mean that's how he earned his living and that's how everybody else got paid but um he just wanted to be one of the guys he could be just as comfortable and enjoy just as much hanging out with one of the roadies as he would with uh, mick jagger i mean i saw that time and time again he uh, he was a really good guy I couldn't yeah. throw him under the bus in the book if I wanted to, because there was really, <laughs> there was just nothing bad to say about him. I love the guy. He's great. Yeah, yeah. And so the time came where uh, it, uh, you were ready for that next chapter. You were feeling burned out, you know, by the road, but uh, Shep got one more tour out of you ultimately, right? But um, tell me kind of about that, that transition period for you from, you know, from kind of that amazing uh, tour life to... Um, to kind of needing a little bit more stability. 
Well, I figured um, with all of this incredible experience and knowledge under my belt, how hard could it be to go, you know, to get a job? Uh, so uh, I went to uh, record companies, concert promoters, uh, publishers, um, everybody. I couldn't find a job. Nobody would give me a job. I don't know if it's because of my charming personality or uh, I just uh, came off as difficult. I really don't know, but whatever it was, I couldn't get, I couldn't get a job. I couldn't give myself away. Well, that's not exactly true in the end. That's exactly what I did. I gave myself away. Ron Strasner, who was the, uh, and Charlie Vaseline, the, the uh, managers of Parliament Funkadelic and Boosie Drubber Band and the whole funk mob thing, said to me, we'd love to give you a job, David, but we're broke. We can't afford to pay you anything right now. But if you'll hang in there with us, things are really happening. I knew Ron Strasner because before I got the job with Alice Cooper, I was Rare Earths tour manager and uh, Ron was the manager at that time. So we knew each other well. And uh, I did my due diligence and I looked, uh, did my research to see uh, what, uh, what was really going on with George Clinton and Parliament Funkadelic. And I realized uh, they were right. This thing was gonna really bust big. It already was starting to, but the money wasn't quite rolling in. So I took the job and uh, I, uh, after a few weeks, I noticed this Bootsy thing, this Bootsy River band, I could be his booking agent. I learned a lot from Johnny Podell and uh, uh, Boosie opened for every P-Funk date. Uh, so he was earning money. I would earn a little bit of money as the agent. I'll open up a booking agency. And I guess Ron and Charlie felt so guilty about me working for nothing. They said, go ahead, open up an agency and represent Bootsy. So that was the beginning of the David Liebert agency. And uh, George was so impressed with my booking agenting uh, style that uh, he left William Mars and came over to the David Liebert agency. So now I have Bootsy, I have George, I acquired the Runaways, uh, Evelyn Champagne King. Uh, so now I had a, a thriving little agency uh, and I'm doing well. Uh, and uh, did that for a few years. That was good. Yeah. Yeah. Do you have any fun Joan Jett stories uh, from the Runaways period? Not that I could tell you on the podcast. <laughs> Stuff we have to keep out. Joan, uh, Joan was the real musician in the band. Lita Ford's, uh, you know, a bit. It's funny, the one that I became uh, long-lasting friends with turned out to be Cherie Curry. I ended up uh, managing her movie career for a while when she did Foxes with Jodie Foster. So I got into that end of the business as well. I didn't really talk about that very much in my book, but uh, um, I, uh, I had gotten the runaways through a, a notorious character called Kim Fowley. I don't know whether you know who he is or not. No, I'm not familiar. Okay, well, good for you. You mentioned him in the book a little bit, though, I think so, right? So he, um, yeah. he, he, he uh, his behavior was just uh, abysmal. He uh, 
he really was quite a character, but he's the one that introduced me to the Runaways. And uh, that was a very successful run. I booked them all over the world in Japan and Europe. Uh, it was great. That was, uh, and I, I, I talk about that a bit in the book as well. Yeah, yeah, that's really cool. Um, tell me a little bit about Prince, uh, because I, I mean, this is jumping ahead a bit, but I mean, Prince, you're, uh, you uh, got set up with Sheila E, which of course connects you to, uh, to Prince, and right. um, and you'd be in hotel rooms after the show. I mean, tell me the story of you know of kind of your experience with Prince, and uh, I mean, he's such a mystical person. Obviously, that there's not many people who really know him, and those that I've heard talk about him are like he's there, like in one second he'll show up and then he'll disappear, you know, like, it's just like, he's, I don't know, he's this incredible force, but what is your experience? I like Prince, he, uh, uh, he can be brutal with people, you know, he was very socially awkward and, uh, you know, he avoided, uh, uh, whereas Alice Cooper was very sociable, would go on Hollywood squares and play golf with Perry Como, uh, Prince avoided those kinds of situations like the plague. He, he, uh, he's one person on stage. He was just a very uh, awkward, uncomfortable guy off stage. Unless within his inner circle, he was just fine because he was, you know, it was still the bubble. It was still his bubble that he was in. But he was very nice to me. And my feeling is that he was nicer to me than most people. Because first of all, I was older than most people in his inner circle at that point. And uh, he knew of my relationship with George Clinton, someone who he really idolized. And he knew that I had uh, history with Alice Cooper. So I guess he didn't want to come off looking like a jerk to me, uh, which amazes me that Prince would even care. Uh, but he was a real professional after every concert. And then he would invite a few people to his suite afterwards, a few band members and Sheila and uh, Apollonia and, you know, the girls that were on the road and a couple of other people, Alan Leeds, his tour manager. And uh, so after that first gig, Sheila called me and said, listen, Prince uh, uh, would like you to join us at his hotel suite. They would all watch the, uh, uh, the video from the, from the, that evening show and he would, make comments about it. I like this. He didn't like that. Uh, and you could see that everything that he did on stage was thought out. He didn't do anything, you know, uh, it wasn't really ad-libbing anything. He may try a little something to see audience reaction. If it worked, he'd keep it in. Uh, if it didn't, he wouldn't. So that was the purpose of the, uh, of the meeting. And I said, wow, I, I felt very honored. I really didn't know Prince at all. And I was in invited to this uh, very select group uh, and uh, that was kind of interesting and then the next night Sheila says uh, uh, Prince would like you to uh, join us again and now I'm saying I'm not sure that I want to be obligated to do this every night I kind of you know cherish my downtime and then the third night uh, uh, Sheila called and I said look I'm not going to go Five minutes later, I get a call from Prince. Come on, Dave, come on down, join the party. It'll be fun. I knew never to answer my phone after that again at night. Yeah. Because it wasn't really fun. It was, uh, maybe it was fun for him, 
It was oh, yeah. of uh, unwinding, and but uh, you know, it's not like a fun-loving guy like Alice Cooper or Chef Gordon. That's for damn sure. No, no, he wanted things a certain way, and you had yeah. to. I mean, talk about walking on eggshells. Everything I've heard, right? I mean, like he's a perfectionist to the key, you know, T, and you, you know, you don't want to get on his bad side. Is, is no. what I've <laughs> what I've heard. So, but I got yeah, along well with him. I enjoyed his company. That's that's really cool. And and uh, and bef before we wrap, when John Lappin, you know, wanted me to make sure to ask you about the one that got away. Uh, guns and roses uh and uh and so tell me the, the guns and roses story and you know you were close to kind of get break you know being able to break them ultimately right like i mean but you you saw them in these tiny tiny places like but you knew they were bigger than life yeah one night i get a call from the notorious kim fowley kim fowley again mm -hmm. he said david go down to this storage uh uh um, locker unit. Uh, there's a bunch of bands living there. One of them is called Guns N' Roses. Go down there and check them out. I think they really got something. So I went down, checked them out, and I realized this was something quite special. They, um, the music was great. They, uh, as, uh, you know, it was pretty wild that this storage locker unit with all these other bands, they used to party like crazy every night. But Guns N' Roses, spent hours very disciplined, at least in this regard, uh, practicing their music, writing songs. They took it all very, very seriously. You could see that. And the most impressive, th impressive thing about them, besides them being so good and the songs being so great, was their whole attitude about who they were. They were the real deal. And what I mean by that is, individually or collectively, they were never not the band. They were always Guns N' Roses. Um, and that, that was sort of intoxicating and infectious uh, to feel that from, from a band, uh, uh, that kind of influence. Hey, listen, when I was in The Happening at the end of our little run of dates, I went home and I was David Lieber. I wasn't a Happening anymore. These guys didn't do that. They were always in the band, whether they were with the band or not. And I realized this is something really, really special. And they, um, so I wanted to manage them. I went to my brother who was a, a physician uh, in Florida and uh, I wanted to borrow $20,000 from him, a repayable loan. I had never asked him for anything in my life until that day. And I brought him the, uh, the demo, the cassette, which note for note was exactly like Appetite, appetite for appetite. Destruction. And uh, I said, look, let me 20 grand. I'll give you 20% of their management. I'll pay the 20 back. It's really a good deal. And then I didn't hear from him for like a week when I finally got hold of him, my brother, risky proposition to invest $20,000 in an absolutely unknown. So my 16 year old kid listened to the cassette and said, these guys aren't that good. They really need a lot of work. So he passed ah. the deal. I couldn't afford to uh, manage them without that money. I needed to get them off the streets. They were living in a, you know, in a, in a uh, storage locker. Yeah. Which was fine for rehearsing, but not 
fine for a living. I mean, it didn't have, you know, any running water or bathroom facilities. It was a storage unit. That's the one that got away. Did you ever tell your, you know, be a, go to your nephew and say, told you so here, you know? <laughs> no, <laughs> like, no, no. Because to tell you the truth, I never spoke to my brother again. Really? That was simply the end of it. Yeah. I, I had been so generous with him uh, while he was going to medical school. And I just thought that, uh, you know, he let me down. That yeah. 20 grand was a drop in the bucket to him. He was a very successful doctor. He could have done it and not even worry about whether he was going to make the money back. And look how much money he would have made. Oh, it would have made him a lot of money and it would have changed your, your life forever. Everything. Or something everything. Yeah. You know, ever, everything for sure. But I mean, it's, it's still a great story to be, to have been there. That's at that why moment. again, we, we go back to the, like being there before the they were what they were, right. You know, exactly. The Aretha thing that, you know, I mean, it's, it's kind of, I mean, that's an amazing thing. I mean, I saw Guns N' Roses last, yep, there it is. Hold it up. <laughs> Perfect. Yes. Uh, rock and that's roll. Like they had hair. <laughs> Not too far off. So, um, that's yeah, what happens so, when you, when you manage George Clinton. <laughs> you lose a little bit it goes gray it changes things a little bit oh I'm, yeah you have stories about george clinton that we didn't even get into but they're in the book and uh yeah and, we want to give we don't want to give everything away steve right no the book the book is great i mean and uh and as a music fan right obviously there's a lot of it i wasn't here for we'll be you know just be, you know, to be honest but but i love those stories and i love i love memoirs and music memoirs as well i mean I got Dave Grohl's on the show, shelf over here, and he—I mean—he has so many amazing stories. I love the stories from the road. You have so many uh, stories from your experiences uh, over over the years, which is so incredible. Just to, you know, to be even a fly on the wall during the, you know, the de defining points of rock and roll, and during the uh, defining points of many of these artists that uh, that you've got to you know have build relationships with and support in different ways. Right? It's it's so incredible, David. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. it's been quite a trip. It's yeah. um, it's been quite an experience just the the last uh, five decades. And uh, uh, would I change some of it? Yeah, obviously. But for the most part, no. It's uh, it's a life. It's a life. Um, it's a life lived. That's for sure. And that's the thing about the regrets that I found too. Right, the things that you want to regret or you should re regret or at the time do regret. Are part of what make you who you are and build those experiences and transform and you know where you you go on your path so you know i mean a lot wouldn't have been the same if you hadn't gone you know had x experience right so absolutely i mean um, a life uh, a life has um, ups and downs and i don't think you appreciate the ups as much as you would if you didn't have some some down thrown in there as well so yeah. do I regret some things? Yeah, of course. Uh, would I do it um, all over again? Not exactly the same, but pretty much. Yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Well, well David, I want to thank you for the time and sharing your story and your and your book. And uh, I mean, it's it's so incredible. Uh, I mean, all of it. So, so just a big old thank you. <laughs> well, thank you. And this was fun. I, I, I enjoyed it, Steve. And uh, I'm glad you liked the book. I. Uh, uh, it um, it was a uh, it was a love project. I really 
I really enjoyed putting it together. And, yeah. Uh, I'm glad I'm getting so much positive feedback about it. It makes me feel good. That was the interview with David Liebert here in Concert Pipeline. And that takes us to the final segment on the program, the music news. All right, I got a couple of stories to wind out the program, what's going on in the music world. Uh, the big, big story is Blink-182. We've been uh, gearing up to this for, you know, for weeks, uh, really, with little tricklets of, uh, of rumors and news that's, uh, that's been coming out about Blink-182 uh, coming back and, uh, and who's going to be in the band. Is Matt Skiba still in the band? Uh, and, or is T Tom DeLong taking over uh, his reins and, and joining the, the band back up? I mean, the way I uh, look at it is, um, you know, Mark Hoppus um, got cancer and uh, survived and uh and you know and come out and i came out on top and does that sort of thing always gives you kind of a newfound look on uh outlook on the world right and what's important uh and so he knows that the uh, blink 182's most successful days and their highest days uh included tom DeLong, even if tom DeLong wasn't ready to be a uh, part of blink 182 when they got blink 182 together for i think it was their california album that uh that they did uh, and uh, and tour and everything for a couple of years. Uh, at that point, he had other ventures, including chasing, um, you know, UFOs. But uh, Tom DeLonge says the new Blink One Eighty Two album is their most progressive uh, of their career so far, and he's back in the band uh, uh, after seven years. Uh, so uh, it has some of their most elevated songs. He he wrote the new Blink One Eighty Two album is some of the most progressive and elevated music we've ever had. In honesty, I am holding my breath for you to hear those other songs. Edging is fun, their new single, Edging, and a perfect way to remind you of the fun again. But just you fucking wait. Uh, all right. And then on the other side, Matt Skiba is truly happy for Blink-182's reunion with Tom DeLonge. He's responded to Tom DeLonge's note, thanking him for keeping Blink-182 thriving uh, after the band returned uh, to its original life lineup, making Skiba truly happy. Uh, the Alkaline Trio vocalist joined the band in 2015 as a replacement for DeLong, who left to change the world for his kids. Uh, Tom DeLong also left Blink in 2005 to focus on his other band, Angels and Airwaves, which was an uh, additional project to his 2001 form side project, Boxcar Racer. Uh, so uh, Skiba is happy, and yeah, he wrote in a message posted to Instagram, I'm sure there's a joke in here about releases and happy endings uh, I'm missing, but I'm truly grateful for my time with Blink, and I'm truly happy you guys are a band and a family again, which is really the nicest thing you could say, right? Uh, that's, that's pretty cool. Um, he said, thanks to the band and all the Blink fans for having me. You were delicious. Uh, so uh, Blink-182 is back, and they announced a world tour, which includes a couple stops in, in and around the Bay Area. They're going to be playing... Uh, Sacramento and uh, and San Jose next year, and uh, and the tour is I think listed for over a year, so they have a lot of dates lined up. They are not slowing down, and then they have an album apparently probably pretty ready to uh, to go alongside that. So uh, that is exciting news for Blink One Eighty Two fans, and of course I look forward to checking that out. Um, okay, Frank T Turner, uh, his touring band, The Sleeping Souls, have released their first single 
uh, liar lover. Uh, they've been supporting band for a long time, and uh, and I guess they never really done their own thing. Um, they've just been Frank Turner's band, Sleeping Souls, uh, and so uh, they this song, the four piece outfit, released the track on Friday, and it features Turner's guitar technician Kahir O'Doherty on vocals. Uh, it's a tender acoustic cut that captures a soft rock sound with lyrics that reflect on a relationship breakdown. Uh, we lie to ourselves and each other as easy as drawing breath, the band commented in a statement. Every lover lies. Liar lovers about that moment in a breakdown of a relationship uh, when you accept that there's no repair, only ownership of your own part in its failure. Uh, you know, that's interesting words to live by because it's important to take ownership when that happens. Um, you know, it's been a while since my last relationship and, uh, and it did not end very well uh, at all. And, you know, I like to admit my mistakes uh, and when I'm wrong and learn from my mistakes as well. And, you know, the girl I was dating was very much not about that, did not like uh, admitting mistakes or that she was wrong uh, and had, had many challenges with that, which was not, you know, an attractive feature for, for me because, someone I'm on a voyage with in life, I just, I, I want to be able to learn and grow and ad, uh, admit that there's opportunity. And, you know, and I learned myself from, from that, um, that breakdown and that, uh, that failure, you know, um, but it was not all lost time. There were a lot of positives in that relationship as well, but, um, but I think it ultimately it was one that, uh, drew on a little bit too long and, uh, you know, and uh, there were some some lessons learned from, let's say. So uh, the band haven't provided a re release date or a track list for this record, but I guess there there's going to be an un, as of yet untitled album um, and it's expected to arrive in 2023. So that's interesting. I wonder if Frank Turner will make a cameo on his band's album. Um, okay. So Sharon Osbourne has opened up about Ozzy Osbourne's Parkinson's disease saying, suddenly your life just stops. Uh, life as you knew it. Uh, she made the comment during a recent interview with uh, Jeremy Paxton, who also suffers from the disease, for his ITV documentary, uh, documentary uh, Paxman, putting up with the Parkinson's. Um, uh, speaking about the family's experience, Osborne said, I just think my husband, who was very energetic, loved to go out for walks, did a two-hour show on stage every night running around like a crazy man. When I look at my husband, my heart breaks for him. I'm sad for myself to see him that way. But what he goes through is worse. When I look at him and he doesn't know, I'm like crying. Um, and she said that, you know, in terms of silver linings, the positive thing is we spend much more time together as a family. And I love my husband more than I do, uh, do three years ago. Um, so he was diagnosed with Parkinson's in 2003, but didn't announce it publicly until 2020. He sat on that for 17 years. Um, and uh, uh, and so it's he's been he's been handling it, but he also doesn't slow down in terms of his making music because he has a new uh, new album out, Patient Number Nine. Uh, and he said, without my share, and I'd be fucking gone. Uh, we have a little row now and then, but otherwise we just uh, get on with it. So um, he's he's pushing forward and doing the best he can. Um, all right. Uh, Beck has reportedly dropped out of Arcade Fire's North American tour, and he's yet to address his removal from that tour. Um, and this North American tour is the first since, and when Butler was accused of sexual assault. Um, 
so there's a couple there's a couple layers to this onion here um and uh it's his removal came less than two weeks before the run is scheduled to begin uh the and uh it's filled by haitian outfit uh Bauchman, uh experience i don't know who that is uh i'll tell you i would much rather see beck uh, opening for arcade fire that would be epic uh epic an epic show i i miss arcade fire and i you know i don't go to a lot of arena or stadium shows or anything like that. Uh, they're just well outside my price range and over the top, too many people. There's a lot of reasons I don't go to them. You know, that's one I would really enjoy seeing. And uh, Arcade Fire was definitely a big part of my musical upbringing um, and development in my musical tastes. So I have a special place in my heart for them. Uh, but yeah, like I said, Beck hasn't uh, addressed this, uh, this dropping out uh, and uh, seven move comes seven weeks after when Butler was accused of sexual assault by multiple women. Uh, Butler denied all allegations, writing in a statement that he was very sorry to anyone who I have hurt with my behavior, but these relationships were all consensual. Um, and uh, in response, a, um, a number of Canadian radio stations stopped playing Arcade Fire's music. Um, they're forging ahead with their touring plans with Butler in tow performing 20 shows across Europe, the UK, and Ireland. Uh, so um, lots going on in that camp. Um, and there's a uh, North American tour is set to begin in Washington, D.C. on Thursday, October 27th. There's 20 shows on the itinerary for the, the U.S. tour as well. So uh, they are marching forward. Okay, and the last story uh has you know try to end it with a Foo Fighters related or Dave Grohl related story so this is the closest one I got right now there's a trailer for Let There Be Drums which features Taylor Hawkins last known interview um and uh let's see here that's the documentary is set to premiere later this month it's directed by Justin uh, Kreutzmann the son of the Grateful Dead drummer uh, Bill Kreutzmann and according to its synopsis will focus on the art of drumming and the musicians who have mastered it uh, it's, there's a lot of people who are interviewed in uh, in this documentary, including uh, one of Taylor Hawkins' final ever interviews before his passing in March. Uh, and they will also feature Ringo Starr, Stuart Copeland of The Police, Chad Smith of the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and Trey Cool of Green Day, among others. Uh, the second I sat on those drums, Hawkins says in the trailer, it was like a bolt of lightning went through my body, and I'll never forget that day. Uh, so um, it's going to hit Apple TV, Amazon Prime and select theaters on October 28th. So right around the corner. Um, and it also spotlights the drummer's personal lives um, in, with Led Zeppelin's John Bonham discussing fatherhood and Star contributing pre-Beatles footage. Uh, and um, so it seems like a really interesting documentary. I'm excited to, to check that out. Um, all right, that is our show for today. Uh, thank you for tuning in. Thank you to David Lieber for his time as well. Uh, and next week on the program, we have Lyrics Born. This is his third time on the uh, on the program. So I'm looking forward to chatting with him about what he's uh, got going on, including a new album called Vision Board, his 14th album that's coming out in early November, as well as a stop in the uh, Bay Area um, the, that uh, he's going to be playing. So uh, all that and more. Uh, that is our show again. Thank you for tuning in and uh, listening, subscribing, liking the podcast, all of that fun stuff. For all of us here at Concert Pipeline, I'm Steve Jones. We'll catch you next time.